Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. more peaceful since the revolution. It is a shame that your people suffered. But bounty hunting is a complicated profession. Welcome back to Still Watching the Mandalorian. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I am a fellow writer at Vanity Fair, Anthony Bresnikamp. Uh, we are here to talk about chapter three of The Mandalorian, subtitled The Sin. The Sin. Very very Roman Catholic, I think. As a boy who went to 12 years of Catholic school, I was like, ooh, The Sin. This sounds heavy. <laughs> we, we can, yeah, and we can talk at the end what we think the uh, the titular sin is. But um, we're going to talk about the episode. We're going to run down the episode. We're going to read an email that we got from you guys. If you are listening to this podcast, you can email us stillwatchingpod at gmail dot com. Uh, any questions, comments, or corrections or concerns you have about our discussion, um, also theories. Let's hear some some theories ooh. about what's coming next. I'd like to hear, yeah, because we don't know, expect. yeah. That's the point. Like, we are up to the number of episodes that Anthony and I have seen. We will not be spoiling it. We've never been spoiling anything in the future, but we will not be spoiling anything beyond episode three. If you hear us talk about anything, uh, it's just our speculation because we genuinely don't know. They've been keeping this pretty, pretty closely guarded. So, uh, we're all in the same boat going forward. If you stick to around to the end of this episode, you will hear Anthony's interview with the actress Emily Swallow, who voices the armorer, who obviously has a big, uh, role to play in this episode. Yeah. And, uh, you know, does she voice it? Does she also play it? I'm really interested in that. Like, I, what her performance is like. We know Pedro is playing the, uh, the Mandalorian a lot of the time, but he also is, there are credited stand-ins. So sometimes it's not. It's obviously sometimes it's a stuntman too, but I'm really curious to hear what goes into the performance, uh, in this dark flame-filled room. Emily, where Emily Swallow brings to life the armorer. Is it time to drop our code names for the, the child? You know, we, we were using these code names as a way of people being able to communicate about it over social media without spoiling that there's a baby Yoda. Uh, we were calling him Green Moses was a good one. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Shamrock, Shamrock Shake. Shake. Uh, some people online are I calling don't him know. Pistachio. I mean, <laughs> what do you think? I, when when John Favreau put out a piece of concept art showing Baby Yoda, I feel like that was just like, okay, everybody can talk about Baby Yoda now. Yeah, John Favreau tweeted it. The official Star Wars account has tweeted some images. So like, 
I feel like gloves are off. We, you know, and I, and my, I mean, hopefully you're not listening to this, but my apologies to UK listeners and other listeners. I know Disney Plus won't be there until March of next year. I'm sorry that you can't enjoy Baby Yoda along with the rest of us. That is a, that is a disappointment, I'm sure. But, uh, we, you know, hopefully they're not listening to this and we will be here for them in podcast form when they finally get the episodes of The Mandalorian. Um, I don't know. I'm, think we should keep shamrock shake it's sort of taken off all right if you saw one of our listeners um made uh you know when watching the second episode made a cocktail that was called the green moses with like midori in it and then had shamrock shakes for dessert and they made like a whole meal but like our two names for yoda made it into uh you know dessert and drink form i like that so midori what it was we'll have to find the uh the user and uh yes. give that person a shout out. So I like Midori in a drink. That's yummy. But what would you put in a shamrock shake drink? Uh creme de menthe? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> a little bit of vanilla ice cream and some uh is it is that how you pronounce it? Creme de menthe? Or you know, that's the snooty way of saying it. You say oh. creme de menthe, creme de menthe, or whatever. My gr- <laughs> my grandma used to make cream de menthe. <laughs> <laughs> I think the drink is called a grasshopper or something like that, and that has like a nice. It was my grandma's drink from the 1950s, and it has right. creme creme de menthe in it. But yeah, I would I would definitely put that in a in a shamrock shake. I will see if I can find um the the user before the episode is through and i will shout them out they tweeted a photo of the drink and it actually kind of looked um delicious obviously midori is is uh, a very very good drink so yeah if you want to make a drink and let us know what you're drinking while you're watching the mandalorian we would love to hear those you can once again you can email us still watching pod at gmail.com um i'm going to start with an email that we got um last week from ian after we were talking about uh the concept of force healing sort of this idea of like what was the little shamrock shake trying to do at the beginning of episode two when it was you know it's squinting its eyes and holding out his hand in the direction of, of Mando's wound. I say force healing. Anthony's like, what is, that's not a thing, Joanna. Um, but it is apparently a bit, you know, that it's something from expanded universe. Also, I found right. the user director. Oh, great. Director Benick, Zen Kenobi. Five days ago, we had the Mandalorian watch party tonight. I made this cocktail called the green Moses to celebrate. It is ugly. Delicious. <laughs> green Moses <laughs> recipe. 1.5 ounces of Midori, one ounce coconut rum, one ounce yeah. pineapple juice, 0.5 ounces of lemon juice. Sounds very vacation. Yeah, that trip to rum. the beach. Love it. Well, very sandy locations we've, where we've been so far. <laughs> trip to the ocean dunes of Karnak or something like that. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> All right. Sorry to derail. No, no, no. Thank you for finding that. So if you want to make your own drinks and tweet at us, uh, you can find us uh, individually on Twitter. You can email us. Um, all right. So Ian wrote in last week, hey, guys, love the podcast. On the question of force healing, I think you're right that it hasn't yet been shown in new canon, although prevalent in almost every Star Wars video game. Obviously, there are examples in new canon of force abilities showing up that weren't previously shown on screen, like Luke projecting himself in The Last Jedi. Interestingly, I think there are also examples of new abilities being introduced in other sources of canon, and especially in the animated shows that later mm, make their way uh, into the films. For example, in Rebels, 
Kanan was ejected into space and pulled himself back in using the Force, much the same way that Leia would later do so in The Last Jedi. The Force connection between Rey and Kylo Ren was also foreshadowed somewhat in Rebels with Ezra and Maul's connection, as well as how Ezra communicated with Yoda. My hunch is that introducing Force healing in The Mandalorian may be a Lucasfilm prepping prepping the audiences for a similar display in The Rise of Skywalker. Um, mm. Purely speculation, obviously, but that is immediately where my mind went. Anyway, keep up the great work, and I've eagerly devoured each episode so far look forward to the rest uh ian thank you ian thanks ian um good good letter yeah great letter can you take a second anthony to let our listeners know who might not know the difference between canon what is canon what is legends and what happened there when when lucasfilm sort of consolidated its storytelling yeah when lucasfilm began well decided in 2012 to uh to to well, to be sold off to disney and that new projects would be developed new film and tv shows um we uh we we had something a little a little break in how things uh had been progressing to that point where there were a lot of novels and and uh particularly books i i would say everything that was like on screen seems to be uh decidedly canon but there were so many books and so many that go back years and years and years i mean to early lando books and things like the first star wars novel splinter of the mind's eye which came out even before uh, I think before uh, Empire Strikes Back, or uh, I'm a little fuzzy on exactly the timeline there, but it was like Splinter of the Mind's Eye was was Luke and Leia ending up on a planet called Mimbin, which we ended up seeing in Solo, a Star Wars story. Uh, mm. That's the Mud World, and they have a confrontation with with Vader. It's kind of like a pre Dagobah, right? And so right. you have all this storytelling that people consumed and really loved. Uh, and, uh, the Timothy Zahn, uh, trilogy, for instance, uh, you know, which came out after all the original, uh, trilogy had, had played out. And this was like the first big Star Wars storytelling movement of the 1990s. Uh, people, people love those books. They loved Thrawn. And yet, yet all that storytelling kind of got not erased. Like your books didn't disappear from the shelf. It's just that. Lucasfilm said those aren't official stories. So if you're saying this happened and therefore we can't actually explore it in, in film, that's not the case. We're erasing all of that. And then people like Dave Filoni would pick and choose specific things that he wanted. Right. People like, um, the, the screen, screenwriters for Solo, uh, John and Lawrence Kasdan decided, well, we're going to, we're going to pull Mimbin back out of, uh, this novel splinter of the mind's eye. And we're going to make that the mud world where Han Solo goes and has a big battle as a, as an Imperial trooper. And that kind of thing has been happening a lot where they pull things from what has now become known as legends and right. made them part of the official storytelling. And in fact, Yoda in, in rebels, I believe it was in rebels. And he may have also said it in the clone wars had this saying of there's a, always a, a bit of truth in legends. Uh, Yoda <laughs> said it and a, a couple of other characters had said it on, on rebels. And, uh, that, that was Dave Filoni's way of saying, if you want to believe, we'll pull some of these things from the legends back into the, we'll recanonize them. And that's been happening a lot. You see it happening with Thrawn. And, uh, so if they're going back and, and mining this material, and saying, here's, here's some cool stuff that let's, let's, let's put that back into the official storytelling. So sorry if that's a little bit of a long explanation, but, but no, no, no. maybe confused. Like basically they just said, we're starting from scratch, but we're also going to maybe pull a couple of those old classic elements back into the, uh, the official storyline. 
basically they've given themselves the possibility to use almost any and all of it that doesn't contradict the story that they're already doing. Exactly. Um, but also freed themselves from the shackles of being beholden to all this EU, uh, storytelling that's been, you know, going on for decades. And I wrote about this a little before The Mandalorian came out. Folks can find this story, uh, over on vanityfair.com. And it's, it, it, I explored why they used IG 11 instead of IG 88. Why they used, why they created the Mandalorian instead of just saying, let's pull Boba Fett out of the Sarlacc and have another story with him. It's because there were existing storylines for a lot of the classic recognizable characters. And they didn't want to erase those. You know, right. they didn't want to say, no, that didn't uh, happen. Yeah. This is what happened because people did have an investment in it. And the writers and creators who made those things way back when also had an investment. So they were just like, we're going to use something that looks similar, has a similar function, but we're going to give it a new personality or, uh, and, uh, and a new story. Right. So as we try to explain, um, you know, to people who might need some help, what's going on in the Mandalorian, you know, using Anthony's encyclopedic knowledge of, of stuff, <laughs> um, we, you know, we might reference legend stuff. You know, obviously canon is only canon, but legends can help us inform at least what material they're looking at as they're making this story. And so I used some of that when I was talking about Mandalorian culture in an earlier episode. That's like legends stuff. Um, but what happened to Mandalore, the purge, the fall of Mandalore, all of that stuff. There's some of that in the animated shows we talked about. That's canon, but I think that there's, you know, they're creating their own story here about what happened and we will find out we found out a few more points of data this week so anyway that's canon versus legends if you were curious um the story group at lucasfilm sort of is is the keeper of all of this of this lore and i do want to let people know uh we have uh, an interview with the director of this episode deborah chow so if you stick around to the end of the episode uh you will hear anthony talking to deborah chow Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Should we dive into the episode, Anthony? Yeah, let's do it. There's a, a very specific thing that I don't even know if you would consider this part of Legends because I don't know that it was actually a part of any official storytelling, really. But it's the Camp Tono that Werner Herzog's client gives to the Mandalorian later. Uh, 
that's one of my favorite little pieces of like almost I would call it fan fiction, like fan lore, something that fans focused on, fixated on, <laughs> and based on literally like less than a second of footage from The Empire Strikes Back. And now it's part of official Star Wars storytelling. Okay, so so we'll get to yeah. that. We'll get to that about, uh, <laughs> it's about, it comes through about like halfway through our recap. So let's yeah, begin okay. with when we last left the Mandalorian. For now, we are exactly, uh, when we last left the Mandalorian, he was speeding away for one planet, which is definitely not Tatooine. I've been told by many people, Anthony was right. I was deeply wrong. Uh, not that I was sure. I was just question mark. And Anthony's yeah. like, no, but it, it definitely is not. Uh, the, it's listed under, under the, uh, character quill under his, uh, sort of data, character data from Lucasfilm. It says which planet he's on and it is not tattooing. So, um, but you know, they were once again, like Anthony said, they're trying to like invoke these familiar things. So invoke tattooing with the moisture farming and the Jawas of episode two, but not he's, mess, actually mess with tattooing. Right. Apparently so. it's called Arvala seven. Exactly. So there I'm guessing go. that's the name of somebody's best friend from high school. <laughs> <laughs> Kim, Kim Arvala, oh. congratulations. You now have a planet name. Kim Arvala, man. <laughs> remember, remember 1997? Great times. <laughs> um, so when the episode starts, it's, uh, I believe the first shot is the Mandalorian sort of like coming out of, um, like a, a hyperdrive. Like it's sort of that one of the, those classic, like, shoot. <laughs> Yeah, sort of back into, back into normal speed, out of, out of ludicrous and plaid back into normal speed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we <laughs> we we get this shot that like I wrote down in my notes when we watched it as um this is what happens when I let my cat roam around my car when I take her to the vet. Um the baby's just on the loose in the spaceship. Uh, oh, yeah. out of the, out of the crib roaming around messing with things. And then what happens, Anthony? Uh the baby takes the knob off of the hyperdrive uh switch and uh you know Mando, Mando's kind of irritated with this. Uh but uh uh, you know, again, it's like a little game of fetch. A little, there's a bit. I know we call him Baby Yoda. He's kind of like Puppy Yoda in a way, too. Oh, like, I was actually, I actually think he's more of a cat, but maybe cat, mm. kitten, like kitten, like I, that's the ears. I think, yeah. For sure. <laughs> and I'm a cat. I'm a cat person, so. Uh, but also, I'm like the long that. nap, like the long nap that happened in episode oh, yeah. two, mm-hmm. and like not being helpful, maybe exactly when Mando needed, like. Not reliably helpful. Yeah, you're right. Definitely more of a, there's definitely more of a cat thing. That's a cat. The dog would be there for you. The cat's like, I'm napping now. Sorry. I can't help you. I was thinking uh, like the playful, you're right. But you know, you know, you're right. The cat would bat that little knob from the uh, hyperdrive right under the, right under the couch, (laughs) right under the the cat, right under the carbon freeze. Like great. (laughs) Like when the cat just knocks your mug off the counter while making eye contact with you and you're like, great Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, anyway, so, the, you know, it's a cute, it's a, I mean, deeply cute moment. We should talk about the way in which the Sharemark Shake has exploded on social media now that people feel free to post images. It's been a, a, yeah. a Yoda fest on my Twitter feed. I don't know about yours. It, it has. I mean, a little bit of cute overload here because, um, it's like cuteness in Star Wars doesn't always work. Because you have the, you remember, you think back to like the Ewoks and how people rebelled against the Ewoks because they, well, what are these cute little teddy bear creatures in my Star Wars? This isn't cool. And, um, I think, uh, I think this is a case of where, uh, weirdly, everybody seems to like it. Like, when was the last time that happened on any front? When did everybody like Like, anything? Yeah. 
I feel uh, like we've all rallied around Baby Yoda, and uh, it's like the light we need <laughs> to get us through yeah. the end of this decade. Just cling to Baby Yoda. There's just um, I just haven't seen any dissent on Baby Yoda sucks, and so good job. Like most Star Wars people, just like they just rebel against cuteness, and uh, or not most, but some. There's just a contingent who just always wanted to be more metal than it ever was yeah and, yeah, um, yeah and baby yoda somehow just seems to have warmed everybody's hearts like i just it's, it has ended hostilities around the world people have laid down arms <laughs> gargamel like- issued a statement saying he, <laughs> he apologizes to the smurfs for tormenting them that he was wrong about uh, <laughs> trying to turn them into gold and like i just expect every villain to go oh you know baby yoda let's that's going to be the resolution of the rise of Skywalker. It's like the emperor is going to have the good guys on the ropes, force lightning them to death. And then suddenly somebody's going to like activate a hologram of baby Yoda. And he's going to be like, Oh man. Or just like hold up baby Yoda, like Simba or something like that. Yeah. Just what have like- I done? <laughs> what have oh, I there done? is beauty in this world. Yeah. Um, it's like the I- Martha. Your, your mom's name is Martha. Too, but- <laughs> yes. That classic bit of storytelling. Yeah. Just classic. <laughs> Iconic. Um, iconic. Yeah, I mean, you know, BB-8 works pretty well, I think, on people, the cuteness of BB-8. Not, and then, that's true, yeah. And the cuteness of the Porgs, but I do think that this is a next level. Even Porgs had had yeah. its h- haters, though. Oh, for sure, for sure. And, and there was also like, a yeah. dark side to Porgs, like when Chewie's roasting a Porg. There's like, they're cute, but also, <laughs> let's eat these well, things. It's funny, because I don't know if you remember that Patton Oswalt bit where he's talking about the prequels, and he's talking about... Um, you know, you know that thing you liked? Well, what if it was like a little kid? Like talking about Darth Vader and Anakin and stuff like that. And the joke of that is like, you don't want that. You don't want to see that. Mm-hmm. But this is very much like, hey, you all love Yoda. What if Yoda was a little kid and super cute and it is working on everyone? So I'm not mad about it at all. Um, so w- the other thing we see on the ship is we get a little hologram of Grief Karga being like, Mando, take the bounty directly to, you know, the client. Do not, you know, do not stop. Do not, you know, pass go, like, go directly there. And, um, he says, I don't know. He says something like, I don't know if he wants to eat him or like hang him on a wall, but like take him in that, you know, directly. And so we get this scene between Werner Herzog, Dr. Pershing, poor abused Dr. Pershing is back and, um, and the Mandalorian. And this, I think is when your favorite prop appears. He gets paid. He gets, uh, uh, his Camptono of Beskar steel, which is this white sort of computerized drum that you enter a code and it opens up and there's the sweet, sweet, delicious Mandalorian metal inside. And, um, the Camptono, Camptono was a new word for it. Uh, that that term actually comes from, I guess, a viral video of a little kid talking about ice cream, and she makes up the word Keptono to talk about ice cream. <laughs> now, keep the ice cream thing in the back of your mind, a little brain freeze floating around back there, because, okay, this is going to seem like we go very, very deep into the tall grass. <laughs> and, like, um, in Empire Strikes Back, there's a scene where Lando is trying to get Leia and Chewie off of cloud city after han is frozen there's panic at this disco uh <laughs> the empire has shown up uh, and is openly uh, uh you know taking taking over changing the deal on lando lando's got to get out and one of the valiant 
citizens of Cloud City sprints past him. Man in a kind of a orange jumpsuit has what looks a little bit like Morris Day and the time hair. Uh, he's carrying a big white drum that is, we now know in the, uh, in the year 2019 is a Camp Tono. And this did not become a phenomenon until like the DVD era and the freeze frame possibility, because this guy literally goes by in a blink. Uh, but when you could suddenly freeze this movie and watch it frame by frame, people were like, who is this? Who is this? pot-bellied man carrying what is apparently a commercial ice cream maker from the late 1970s. That's the object. It looks a little bit futuristic, I guess. So somebody was like, here, run with this. You're carrying this. You're evacuating with this. Nobody even really knows who this actor is. It's just some background guy probably, you know, got paid as a, as a, a couple of bucks to run around on the set of Empire Strikes Back back in 1979. But he's not somebody who's out there. Identity is even known. He certainly isn't at conventions. But the character was given the name by fans of Wilro Hood. <laughs> and um, they people were so tickled by him. And he looks like such an unconventional Star Wars character because he's he's a little like he's middle aged. He's kind of plump. You know, he's got like an obvious pot belly in this orange jumpsuit of his. And he's carrying an ice cream machine. So people were like, oh, this is a brave Mr. Cone. This is like a Mr. Uh, Mr. Softy who's fleeing Cloud City with his, with his, uh, hand, you know, his homemade uh, ice cream recipe that he doesn't want to fall into the hands of the, the Sith and evildoers. And, um, and so people just were making up these crazy theories and Star Wars, which apparently had some time on its hands in the, in the late 2000s, decided to make him canon. So they put out, <laughs> Like a, like a trading card. I think he was in like a trading card game that this guy's name was Will Rowe Hood. And they, uh, they, they upped his, uh, his cred a little bit by saying he was not like a fleeing ice cream, uh, dispenser, but he was, uh, he was, uh, that he had this object was, uh, uh, you know, contained some, some rebel f- refueling information. So that would have been valuable military information that he didn't want to fall into the, uh, into the Empire's hands that apparently like Cloud City had been supplying to ban a gas to the rebels. So like, we don't want to, we don't want to, we don't want to give them any info about who we're communicating with. So we're going to destroy this or, or escape with it. Uh, Hasbro made a action figure. I have it in a box <laughs> on my wall. Do you? I do. Amazing. I will tweet a picture of my Will Road action figure because <laughs> my brother and I discovered this character like in a Walmart. We were, you know, my brother Greg when, I was visiting him in Iowa and we went to a, a a Walmart, I think, to pick up like Thanksgiving supplies. And we were looking in the toy section. We're like, who is Wilro Hood? <laughs> Apparently he's got an ice cream machine. Um, <laughs> and uh, John Favreau and Dave Filoni, uh, yeah, they, they told me back at Celebration. They're like, you know, John had tweeted a picture of this white drum and he didn't explain what it was. And if you knew, you knew. If you knew who Wilro Hood was, you knew. Uh, and I remember asking, like, well, so what is that? And he said, oh, that's our Camp Tono. And that's, it's like a safe. That's what has the Beskar steel in it. So he brought, so he has, again, here's an example of they've taken something that really wasn't even any part of, like, any kind of official storytelling until the fans came up with it and came up with some theories. And they've actually made that safe, made that object now a safe. So clearly, whatever Will Rohood was fleeing with, uh, it was inside his Camp Tono, his galactic portable safe. And now we have this portable safe delivering to the Mandalorian, 
is Beskar Steel. So, and and in, incredibly, like, um, I just love the what they've done to it to trick it out. You know what I mean? Because this, like, this definitely is just an ice cream maker that they shoved into the arms of an extra. Yeah, they didn't do in, anything to dress Empire. it up. It's not like yeah. when they took like a big shaver and they like, <laughs> you know, they decked it out to be a communications device for uh, uh, uh. For the Phantom Menace, like this is this was just like here, just go. Run. <laughs> so, um, but but the version that we see, you know, has got some like switches on it. It's nice and weathered. It's got that good, good, mm-hmm. um, old antique Star Wars. Uh, it's made a lot of ice survive. cream. Made a lot of ice cream. <laughs> a lot of cookies and cream. All right. So the Mandalorian gets his steel, and then but then he asks, uh, "What are you gonna do with it?" And this is a violation. We find out of the bounty hunter code. Uh, you know, and, and the client gives him a dressing down. He's like, you know, the rules, like once you've delivered the bounty, you're no longer allowed to like, you know, what happens in bounty hunting stays in bounty hunting. You don't talk about it. You don't ask questions about it. That's the code. And, uh, you know, and the Mandalorian just sort of walks away with his deal after that. But, um, you know, and we, and we see the, the poor, cute, baby being like you know floated off into a, in a sinister chamber in the back somewhere so um is the mandalorian gonna leave the baby in the clutches of of the villainous empire and that's the season finale <laughs> yeah like, <laughs> and the mandalorian was a dick <laughs> the, the end, end. <laughs> and then he's oh no no i was almost gonna make a joke about what happened to baby yoda but it's too cute and i can't um so then the next, the next stop that the Mandalorian makes is back to this, uh, sort of hive, this little den of, of Mandalorians. Uh, and we find out, uh, why they're underground. It's something to do with their new Mandalorian culture. They're in hiding, basically, having, having had their culture destroyed. And they only come above ground one at a time is the sort of rule. So as not to let people know, where the concentration of the Mandalorians, the remaining Mandalorians. So when, so when Mando is out and about hunting and gathering, he's the only one. Yeah. And they all have to sit underground. And that does, this obviously does not sit well with one large-ish Mandalorian with a very familiar voice. Um, if you didn't catch it, that was John Favreau voicing the, uh, the Mandalorian with a temper whose temper gives us a, a, a nice excuse for some exposition. Um, but basically the Mandalorian comes in, he's got all this steel. The, uh, the armor says she can make him a full, uh, curious, I think is the name of, I don't know, full, full suit of Beskar. This is such a flex on behalf of the Mandalorian. And you see it later, like when he's wearing the full suit, you're like that, like, cause Mandalorians don't look like that. They don't look shiny. They look, they always look like battered and scratched. So for him to be like, yeah. yes, give me the full suit of Beskar. It's such a flex. What do you think of it? Yeah. I mean, when he shows up at the uh, cantina, you know, dressed to the nines, it, I think there's also a little bit of silliness about it. It's sort of like, not that it's a joke, but that he just seems so out of place. It's like yeah. when, it's like when, uh, um, when Jim Carrey shows up in Dumb and Dumber, like in the blue tuxedo, just like, <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. like over, it's over, you're overdressed, you're overdone, yep. and yep. like, you now stick out really badly, you know? Yeah. And it's sort of like flashing a wallet full of money in a den of thieves, like, oh, now everybody's like, Oh, he thinks he's somebody, right? 
it's oh. like doing a job and then like get you know showing up drippy and ice you know what i mean it's like yeah. everyone's like okay uh you're you're putting a target on your back pretty pretty much son um you want to be like robert de niro in uh, goodfellas you're not supposed to spend the money what is with this yeah. coat why'd you buy this car <laughs> return the car get the um, car get out of here <laughs> um so before we get to that moment where I think he looks like a lot like Robocop, but mm-hmm. like before we get to that moment, <laughs> um, let's go back to this fight in the Mandalorian underground. Um, the, the Mandalorian voiced by John Favreau says the, these are the spoils of the great purge and our world was shattered by the empire. Um, you know, and we've been reduced to this. So we get a little bit more information about like why the Mandalorians hate the empire, and as the armor is forging this suit for the Mandalorian, we get flash more flashes of that purge. What do you think of this of this uh, backstory that's sort of coalescing for this culture? Well, I, I like it, and I think it's worth saying you have Favs here uh, voicing a character, but he voiced a character in the Clone Wars called Pre Vizsla, mm-hmm. who's a Mandalorian warlord who. Uh, Spoiler alert, like, doesn't survive. So he would have died probably like a quarter century or more before this story plays out in The Mandalorian. So it's not the same guy. Um, uh, maybe a descendant. Who knows? Ooh, his cousin. Like, I'm kind of (laughs) curious. Cousin Vizsla, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, and, um, pre Vizsla also is like, like, pre visualization is a big thing among filmmakers and, yeah, and became so like about 15 years ago where you did digitally create a version of the movie, uh, kind of like the, a little bit almost too on the nose as a little tip of the hat to visual effects to artists Favreau. out there. Well, I mean, yeah. Um, but to, to directors and visual effects artists, uh, it's like a little bit of an in joke for them. Uh, that's just as an aside. I think, uh, you know, you get this character here who is clearly not happy that he is, has to stay underground and that Mando is out there uh, actually doing pretty well by the tribe, right? By the group. He's yeah. bringing back the resources, so you can't really fault him for that. But then um, I think there's obviously, it's good to create a little bit of tension here. And I like the idea of this, uh, of this proud class that has been destroyed and a proud culture that's been destroyed and and i think our previous episode i said the mandalorians are kind of like they dress differently but they exist in the same time as everybody else but they they like to keep to themselves that they're a bit like maybe amish or mennonite like but warrior versions of that and now yeah. you know this part kind of reminded me a bit of like native americans uh you know a, 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 you know a, a proud culture a strong culture that just is overwhelmed and in 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 through war and greed is is destroyed almost to the point of extinction it's almost uh, you know i hesitate to use such a uh you know heavy term here but it's like an extinction or a, um no, a, gen- it, a genocide of of their people and absolutely. you see them i think but i'm actually glad that star wars did this because it is star wars and i think you have to show that there are consequences beyond just the pew, pew, pew and the fun space battles and all that is that here's a group of people, including a bunch of little masked kids who, who are decimated and demolished and broken and living in pretty squalid conditions. So, um, 
The armor says to be a Mandalorian is to be both hunter and prey. And how can one be a coward if one chooses his way of life? This is the way we get this repeated sort of, this is the way intonation in that scene. Um, and what I feel like we're seeing in this episode, I really like this episode for these thematics of codes. Cause we hear, we hear a bit about what the Mandalorian code is. You don't take the helmet off. You don't let anyone take your helmet off. This is the way. Uh, we only come up one man at Mandalorian at a time. This is the way sort of thing. Um, and then we heard about the bounty hunter code. And so this idea that the Mandalorian is at a place, I think, where he's in conflict. And the reason why they keep talking about the foundlings, the foundlings are the future. Like we do everything for the foundlings. The Mandalorian culture, a lot of it is founded on these children who are abandoned who are brought into the mandalorian culture and raised as mandalorian like jango fett um adopted mandalorianism but wasn't you know born on mandalore and so this idea of adoption and foundlings because i'm not even convinced that pedro pascal's character like the kid that we see in the flashback i'm not even convinced he was born a mandalorian i think he was found abandoned and brought into the Mandalorian tribe. This is his adopted family. Um, and so this idea of protection of lost children seems to be really hammered into the Mandalorian culture. Correct me if any of this sounds wrong to you. Um, and so the bounty hunter code mandates that he turns over this small thing to the client and not ask any questions. That's the bounty hunter code. But the Mandalorian code seems to say, no, you should be protecting this child. So what do you do as a man DeLorean out in the world when your two codes come into conflict? You know, I love this. Uh, you, you told me you were going here before we began recording this idea of conflicting codes and believing two things and the dissonance that that creates inside your head, inside your helmet of <laughs> uh, what you, what, what you believe, what your personal code, what you owe to your culture and your society. And that's always what the gunslinger stands for, right? Is this personal integrity, but also standing up for what's right in his or her culture. And, uh, you know, you, you get this here. This is, you can read it in the face mask and the, the performance, the physical performance that Pedro Pascal gives is there's a tension and a coiled quality to the Mandalorian. He's not sure he's doing the right thing. Also by, uh, this, well, we're, we're getting, I may be getting a little bit ahead here, but he has a choice to make about what to do with baby Yoda, whether, to, whether to leave him or not, whether to break that code. And that means breaking which a promise code, yeah. to his tribe too. Well, yeah. Which code to break, right? You know what I mean? Right. Sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah. And then it, it, it puts his tribe at risk. He wasn't trying to put them at risk, but it does put them at risk, um, because they rushed to help him. Um, I, can I read you a, a favorite crackpot theory of mine that comes from, um, a listener cat? So it's yeah. about, it's about if, if, uh, Pedro's character was not born a Mandalorian, then like, do we have any context clues as to who he might be? I mean, he might just be a Mandalorian. When they talk about the great purge, we get flashbacks to him seemingly on the run. Would there be Mandalorians who didn't wear, you know, armor? Like, because his parents are running around without armor on. So, like, it, you know, does that look Mandalorian to you? What do you think about that, Anthony? 
Well, I I mean, you don't always have to wear armor. Um, you know, we've certainly seen on Rebels, Mandalorian characters take their armor off. We saw that in the uh, the, the Clone Wars. Um, so I think I think it's it's possible they were not. I mean, not everybody can be a warrior. You know, even in right. tribal cultures, you have. You have your warriors and then you have your civilians essentially. So and it wouldn't necessarily be practical. And, and somebody like Sabine Wren, the character voiced by, uh, Tia Sirkar on Rebels, like she, she had her helmet off all the time. So it wasn't, I mean, it's possible that you, that they could be Mandalorians and not, not be battle ready. But now after being beaten down that they're always battle ready that they're always prepped for conflict so right you know yeah it's a it's it's an interesting uh, the this idea of a very martial culture and what and what mm-hmm. drives you to be a martial culture um is really interesting to me um but cat writes in her her sort of her th- her theoretical speculation if being a foundling means that he is not a mandalorian by birth but an orphan raised in that culture she says, I don't necessarily think that. I've just heard it thrown around. I have a theory about where he's from. The leathery bracelet slash ornaments that appear in his flashback look an awful lot like Holdos from The Last Jedi. And in Leia, Princess of Alderaan, which is a book, um, uh, they mention that Holdos outfits are unusual because most people from um, Gatalenta wear only one color, their traditional red cloaks. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, we see the Mandalorian and his parents in flashback, or seemingly his parents as guardians in red cloaks. And then it's true that the like leather detailing that's, um, on his costume and the, and the bracelets of the people wearing him do, I will admit, bear an uncanny resemblance to the ones that, um, Holdo wears in The Last Jedi. So just a, a theory, a question mark. Nobody is, you know, uh, throwing down all their money on this theory, but you know, just something to keep in mind. It's fun to, I fun love to these see. theories. Yeah. And to think about it's, how costume, costume design might, might influence, um, you know, what we're seeing. So, yeah. Very good. I mean, it, I think this goes to show that no matter how much you know or think you know about Star Wars, it is such a vast, uh, canvas that, that, that there's always going to be a fan out there who notices something you don't or has a observation and there's a lot to, to pull from so good job um so we go to to sort of sew up this whole mandalorian lore chat um the armor when she's making his armor asks brings up this topic of a signet again we've heard it before we hear it again and this idea my understanding now i think of a signet we talked about a little before is sort of like the mandalorian culture they have these houses right you found you you head of houses very much like on game of thrones and so i think the signet is sort of like what will your house you know your sigil be basically um, you know, and he says he got the Beskar because he defeated a Mudhorn, but he does not want the Mudhorn signet as his signet because, you know, the baby helped him do that. And, you know, he feels conflicted about that. So she gives him these little weapons, these little whistling birds, um, instead, which he blows before the episode's over, by the way. So, you know, um, so much. Yeah, there's, a, there's more whistling birds where that came from, right? <laughs> I uh, hope so. I hope so. Um, but yeah, so that's, I mean, is there anything else you want to say about sort of ever, the the info dump of Mandalorian culture we get in this sequence? Well, well, do we feel that this season is going to end with him getting a signet that looks like a Yoda? I mean, that's what I was thinking. 
But it seems like a very silly looking signet, a baby Yoda signet. <laughs> You know what like I mean? A, like a guy, but I have like a cookie cutter Yoda that I think. Yeah. <laughs> Can stamp that, stamp that into some Bascar. Um, I like maybe like, maybe there's like a really cool stylized way to do it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like a, a half circle for the head and then sort of like, I don't know, triangles, but like cut. The, I don't know. I'm envisioning something in my head that could look cool, but I think it needs to be like stylized. It can't be like, cute. it can't be like Hello Kitty. You yeah. know, like, <laughs> yeah. it's gotta yeah. be something. I, I mentioned how Star Wars fans want things to be a little metal. We're talking about actual metal here. So it has to be, uh, <laughs> it has to be a little more badass than it can't just be like, like I said, oh, cute, cute little baby Yoda is your, is your signet. Great. Uh, yeah. No, you, you'd be, <laughs> you'd be kicked, kicked out of the hive. Um, anyway, so, uh, we get the Mandalorian leaves in this full suit of Biscar that puts a target on his back because he just looks too flashy. Goes into the bounty bounty hunter bar and Grief Cargo is like, ah, none of you got the. This is my only friend. <laughs> um, you're you know you're my associate. He he sh- he flashes that he got himself a little bit of a scar, a little percentage um, of the deal, and that that comes to play later. But I liked the way it did not set alarms off for me when he flashed that. I wasn't like, oh, obviously that's going to come into play later. So mm-hmm. I thought that I thought that was really tidily done. And then he you know he just dropped some fun. Uh, you know, Star Wars uh, locations and concepts on us, like the Twilight healing baths. Is that something that that you're aware of in in canon or legends? Um, uh, it sounds very it sounds very I, evocative to me. Do I sound derelict if I say uh, I have not? I have no, not, no, no. Like, I, oh, I, like is there going to be some erotic novel about the Twilight healing baths? <laughs> you know, like it just sounds. That just sounds a little too grown up for Star Wars. I don't know. The healing, uh, I guess maybe it's just healing baths. Sorry, did I go to sure. a bad place? <laughs> no, no, no. You're like massage, the Twilight massage parlor where they just, know, just like bath, you. like Twilight bathhouses. I don't know. It yeah, just seems a little, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Um, well, and then he also talks about spice, uh, a canton of spice that, you know, you know, when he, I think the phrase he uses is like, when you come out of hyperdrive, you like will forget anything that happened and hyperdrive mm. being sort of like a, a, you know, a euphemism for a trip. So, you know, he's what talking about stays that. in hyperspace. <laughs> what happens in hyperspace stays in hyperspace. So, um, you know, and then, and then he offers him a bounty, um, on the ocean dunes of Karnak. This is just a great Star Wars phrase. The ocean dunes of Karnak. Um, but basically he offers him like a nobleman who skipped bail. Here's a good job you could do. Or you can go report these, uh, you know, storm, stormtrooper motherfuckers to the, the new republic. And the Mandalorian says, that's a joke. You know, so that's our, that's our information on how the, uh, the new government that Leia's trying to build or whoever's trying to build, uh, is going. It's considered a joke, uh, five years after Return of the Jedi. Uh, so that's all happening. Um, so yeah, the Mandalorian fires up his chi- ship. He's gonna go forget this baby. He's got a shiny new suit, uh, a new mission. He's just gonna go and forget it all. And then, of course, no, he powers the ship down, gets out, and then most ominously of all, he's snooping around. He sees that adorable space crib in the dumpster. <laughs> Terrible <laughs> the space dumpster. But it's it's reaching for that hyperdrive switch, man. That he notices. Oh, that's yeah. what gets him. <laughs> That's what makes him think of his little kitty cat Yoda Aww, baby. His kitty cat Yoda baby. <laughs> um, 
And so this is, this is a moment that I wanted to dive into really quickly with you, Anthony, which is, there have been, you know, people are really into Baby Yoda. I think people are into the Mandalorian generally, obviously. But, you know, I constantly am hearing about this topic that you and I addressed since the beginning, which is how can I emotionally connect with a character who is always masked? And, you know, for some people it's working and for some people it doesn't. And, you know, for some people, um, Darth Vader, you could see a lot of emotion in, in just the like body work uh of of Darth and the voice work of Darth Vader and for some people you can't and i'm i'm what i'm going to say is like your best shot so far i think of really connecting with this mandalorian character mask or no um is in this shot where he sees the crib and it's the the combination of music and sort of like whatever either Pedro or whoever's in the suit at the time was like doing with the body work really worked for me for this silent decision that the Mandalorian makes here. Um, do you have any thoughts of how it's going so far with, with the mask and the emotions? It's working for me, partly because yeah. it's the Mandalorian is not supposed to have emotions. So he's not supposed to ask questions and it works like the Clint Eastwood squint for me. Isn't he just, there's a, uh, a stoicism about his face by way of the mask that, you're not able to read. It's the ultimate poker face because it's not even a face. So you're reading little cues from the body language, but you're also picking up the emotion. I think um, uh, Ludwig Gorenson's uh, music is really doing a lot of the lift on yes. what you're supposed to be feeling. And um, and those combinations, I mean, that's teamwork. That's film filmmaking. Uh, so... The combination of the camera moves, the music, the 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 lack of motion of the actor, the stillness and the choices there really do convey as much emotion as we need. And also, it's a bit of a blank screen that we project our own emotions to. Yeah, I love that. It makes the audience reach out a little further. It's kind of like in an interview when you're dealing with somebody who's very quiet or doesn't <laughs> or gives you very stilted answers, very short yeah, answers. And yeah. you just and you just wait them out. And, and then they and, give you a little more and you make them meet yeah. you. Yeah, a rookie rather mistake. Than rushing to fill that fill the void. Who knew that Anthony and Joanna would give you some interview advice? But yeah, I think a rookie mistake, one that I made plenty of times, is to try to fill in that space yourself with more talking. But if you're quiet and if you wait, usually your subject will give you a, um, unpeel the onion one more layer for you, you know. If I'd guess, I would guess we get the helmet off. In the finale. That seems like a good finale reward for us. It might come sooner. I don't know. Um, but, uh, and it's a journey there. You know what I mean? Like they talk about in this episode, you don't take the mask off. You are masked. You're closed in. You, I like the word you use coiled. Mm -hmm. This idea of like this refugee kid who was an, who was orphaned, has a lot of pain, is on a determined mission to like bring money back to his people. And then this un, bearably cute thing starts to crack him open mm -hmm. you know so who, um, who yeah. betrays less emotion and more stoicism uh pedro pascal's the mandalorian or olivia coleman's queen elizabeth ii <laughs> in, in the season three of the crown 
It's a good question. It's a good question. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I feel like the Mando would have gone to Aberfan much sooner. <laughs> yes, and 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 not dress Charles down for his Welsh speech. Um, <laughs> Did you show emotion? <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, so the Mandalorian is, you know, he sees the crib. I don't know. It's almost like fist clench. Okay. What am I going to do? He spies on the client and the doctor and the client saying like, get the extract what you need. So this is an extraction situation. Extract what you need and be done with it. And the doctor's like, we were told to bring the thing back alive. Um, and the client says, I can no longer guarantee your safety. So this is, you know, this is the conflict we've already seen. We see a little bit of, uh, more of it a few minutes later because the Mandalorian comes in, just, you know, blows everyone out of the water <laughs> to get to the baby, gets to the baby. It's in this contraption. And Dr. Pershing goes like, please don't, 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 don't like kill me. Please don't. If it weren't for me, like, he and he and he genders the baby. I've there's been some questions about that, but he the Dr. Pershing fairly clearly says he he would not be alive if it weren't for me. And so the Mandalorian spares Dr. Pershing because he like believes him and but grabs the baby out of the contraction uh contraption and goes. And um and then uses some whistling birds on some particularly bad guys uh, as he tries to get out of there. Do you have any thoughts, Anthony? We we have only watched this episode once. We haven't had a chance to freeze frame the device. I'm sure all of you uh, on Reddit will be doing that. But uh, do you have any thoughts about sort of the medical procedure that we uh, see in this episode? Well, I think what's happening here is clearly Baby Yoda has some force abilities and this is one of the things that some Star Wars people really dislike that George Lucas applied to the Force in uh, the prequels, which was the midichlorians and the idea that there's like a science-based aspect to it. And I can only imagine that's the information they're trying to extract. Maybe some, you know, genetic information, but also they're trying to harvest an understanding of the biochemical, physical uh, elements that would give this being its powers. And... That to me is a, it's, I like it in this show because to me, that's like the betrayal of the spiritual side of the force where there's like an intuitive understanding and a connection that you make on a, on a, on a, on a, on a almost a, a, an otherworldly level. But this, uh, this is like, we're just going to crack open this baby and we're going to, um, and harvest the data. That to me is like a betrayal of everything the force stands for, but also like a legitimate exploitation of it. And it shows right. bad guys using the force to their own means. And, uh, um, you know, for instance, kyber crystals have a similar like spiritual sacred component in, in, uh, in force lore. And it gets, uh, turned into a super satellite weapon that destroys whole worlds. And so I like that aspect that they're, they're acknowledging the supernatural side of it, but they're using science to, to crack it and dissolve it and create something new. Right. So we could see potentially force-wielding clones or something like that is is an idea yeah. of what might be afoot here. Exactly. Yeah. What if you uh, create an army of, of force-wielders? Yeah. Yikes. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, and Dr. Pershing, you know, is kind of a classic figure, a classic, uh, Western murky morality figure. Like he's working with these people. We don't know why. Maybe he, you know, maybe they have his family. Who knows what, what he's working under duress and he's trying to protect 
this baby while still doing their bidding. So he gets spared. Is this the last we'll see of him? I would guess not, but no. you know, who knows? Um, the whistling birds are launched. Uh, you say there's more whistling birds where those came from. I just like, I was waiting for them to re- return. Like they, you know, these, these things, these really cool weapons, like launch out of his gauntlets, take down all these, uh, you know, stormtroopers trying to stop him. And then I was waiting for them to like come back to roost in his gauntlets and they didn't. I was like, well, that's a, I mean, if you're it's a like scavenger, Bugs Bunny. it's like Bugs yeah. Bunny. That's ah, a great trick, but it only works once, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're if you're a scavenger, if you're a Jawa, you might want to dig through those bodies for little Baskar bullets that are in them right now, I guess. Um, and then we get this great sequence, which is just the Mando. It's a very Western classic sequence of the Mando trying to get to his ship. Um, as all the tracking fobs go off. Uh, and every bounty hunter, uh, in, in, you know, on, in the world, in the galaxy, it seems, has probably been activated, uh, to go after the Mandalorian, including, including his pal Grief Cargo, who was so nice to him just a few scenes ago, uh, to try to stop him from taking the baby off planet. Um, what do you make of, of this showdown? Well, that, I think Grief is motivated too by the fact that, okay, if one of his people breaks this code, uh, it's going to look bad on him and his whole operation. So you can't do that to us, Mando. That seemed to be yeah. what's driving him. But also yeah, now there's can't. a new bounty. Get the Mandalorian. I love – talk about whistling birds. I love when all the all of the trackers go off. It's like everybody's phone lighting up. Uh-huh. It's like, well, doesn't that happen at the end of – not to spoil it, but John Wick 2, I think? You like find out that eh, – I don't know if you've seen John Wick 2, but at the end, you know, he's walking through, I think it's like Central Park or someplace, and like everyone's phone goes off and they freeze and you realize that every single person you're looking at is an assassin. And you're sort of like, <laughs> you're sort of like, how does, you know, it's like, it's like a really murderous flash mob. You're like, how does, how does society work this way? Anyway, so yeah, every bounty hunter is on, on the lookout for the Mandalorian, which is a great premise for, you know, the rest of the season. He's on the run. Every bounty hunter is looking for him, including we might suspect, um, the character that Ming-Na Wen is playing, uh, including possibly the Twi'lek that we've seen in, um, trailers, uh, yeah, played by Natalia Tanya. Yeah, Bill Burr, you know, like basically he's just gonna be dodging these bounty hunters for the rest of the season is my guess. Um, once again, that's speculation. We don't know, but, um, Cara Dune could also be Cara Dune. Right? He, yeah. A friend or foe friend or foe we'll see um but he hops he gets on this speeder and it's very like covered wagon get me to i was thinking 310 to yuma right but it's just sort yeah. of like get me on the train and then i'm out of here the real rescue is the mandalorians come uh and and help him out include led by the one voiced by john favreau um i was watching this so i i the screening that i got to go to in san francisco um in the screening event that you went to in la the i think these were called fan events so some press was there but mostly it was fans and the fans are the fans that were at my screening were these are these die hard you know, they have these, I don't know if you've ever been to like a Star Wars screening or a fan event or whatever, they wear these like matching motorcycle sort of Hell's Angels jackets. And, um, I had a big group, uh, that's called the Wolves of Mandalore. Um, and Dave Filoni actually talked about them during the, uh, Q and A before the screening, how he like has dinner with them at celebration every year and stuff like that. And they're this, you know, they're just like, they're this lovely, like rowdy bunch of like, they look like bikers, but their helmets are Mandalorian helmets. Like, and they were in my screening and they like 
basically howled when all the Mandalorians sort of like came on screen and started firing and fighting. Um, did you, what, what happened in your screening when, when this, uh, this big moment came? Just big cheers went up, yeah, you know, my yeah. little girl cheered and was super excited to see. It's just nice. I think it's refreshing to see people come together and fight for someone, you know, that yeah. idea of unity. And, uh, even if you're not thinking about that consciously, it's just kind of cool to see these folks like flying around and, Using, using all of the cool abilities and powers that we always knew Boba Fett had that he never quite deployed. Right. Um, it was <laughs> Finally. Cool. It was cool to see them in action, but also see them working for good, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. We've been talking about codes and families, right? And so what's true is that uh, Mando's bounty hunter family, if you ever wanted to call it that, completely turned on him, including Grief Karga, who was so paternalistic to him earlier, completely turned on him. And the Mandalorians, who were hostile towards him, showed up for him. So this, this shows him that he made, I think, the right choice in terms of which code to listen to. You know what I mean? The bounty hunters are never going to be there for him. They're out for themselves, whereas the Mandalorians are about community, communal identity, um, and that sort of thing. So that's the, the clash we get at the end here. Grief Karga, you know, sneaks away to try to trap the Mando on his own ship. Uh, a nice sneaky move and he gets shot in, in the chest for his troubles and, uh, but is saved by the Beskar steel. This, of course, is a classic, uh, this is a Clint Eastwood move. This is this a full dollars. Um, a, a, Mar- a Marty, Marty McFly, McFly. <laughs> yep, a Marty McFly move. Uh, or oftentimes you'll see it in things where it'll be like a a, a Bible because it's a, it was like a breast pocket thing, right? So it'll be like a Bible has saved you. I've seen that in a bunch of movies. Yeah. Or in um, Batman, I think it's like a like a silver serving tray or something like that that Michael Keaton shoved down his shirt. So uh, you know, this is this is a classic classic Western move. Uh, love love to see it. And the Mando flies off and we see, um, once again, that, that, that Mandalorian character played by John Favreau flies up with that jetpack, which is a Boba Fett thing. And what does the Mandalorian says? He goes, I gotta get me one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, it's very, it's a very Iron Man moment for John Favreau. Um, that moment right there, right? Like the, the, his character that he's voicing, basically he salutes the Mandalorian as he's flying his plane and then sort of zooms off. And it just seems like a very, a very Iron Man move. Um, or Iron Patriot, either one. Um, and basically the, the Mandalorians, because they expose themselves, will have to find a new place to hunker down. And sort of rebuild and regroup. Um, they expose themselves in order to save Mando. And then the last thing we see, of course, is him screwing off the, the knob of the hyperdrive and, and giving it to his little baby companion, baby Yoda. Yeah. Here you go. Knock yourself out. <laughs> Knock yourself out, kid. <laughs> uh, and we are off and we are off to who knows where. Episode uh, four hiding somewhere uh, dodging bounty hunters uh is there anything else in this in this episode that you want to uh dig into before we move on i think that covers it um all right let us go now to anthony's interview with emily swallow emily thank you so much for talking to us today on uh, the still watching podcast my colleague Joanna Robinson and I are having a blast recapping the show and talking about the Mandalorian and the character of the armorer 
is so interesting to us. Uh, you have so much mystique and so much mystery surrounding you. You're such an enigma. Tell me about how you got the part of the armor. It's remarkably low key because when I got the audition, I didn't even really know for sure what I was auditioning for. There, there hadn't been anything announced that there was going to be a Star Wars series. It had a code name. And my agent said, we think this has something to do with Star Wars, but you know, the casting director will neither confirm nor deny. So I, I really had very little information. I had a couple of scenes and they were very bizarre. You know, I didn't have anything to attach it to, but in some ways that was, I'm so glad for that now, like now seeing what this has become and how huge it is and how exciting it is because I didn't really get that worked up about it. And I, I remember just being in the room with a, a casting associate and doing it a few different ways on tape. Then at one point he said, you know, why don't you try it with a British accent? Because I guess they've been mostly seeing Brits for the role. Mm-hmm. So that's how all of that came about. And I did know like the the little information I had was that she was a, a leader of these people and very comfortable in a position of like, knowing that she had all of their respect. And that I think is one of the, one of the coolest things for me in playing her is just trusting that like she, that she does have that authority without having to be very forceful at all. She's much more calm, cool, and collected than I could ever be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's always cool to play somebody like that. So they told you that this character you were auditioning for was a leader of like, of a, of what, like a tribe? What, did, what kind of information did they give you about who she was and what they wanted you to to, to conjure in your performance. You mean just in the audition? Yeah, they just tell in the me, audition or, part. Yeah, yeah, just in the audition. Um, yeah, I, I believe it was that she was a leader of a, a clan of some sort. I can actually probably, I'm going to look up the audition <laughs> email on my computer and tell you what information I had. Real-time research here. This is good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, here we go. Okay. Uh recurring role of armorer in the Disney streaming service straight to series untitled high budget. <laughs> that's what it is. That's the code name. Project. High budget project. Yeah. Got it. So they said about her leader, strong Zen, but with authority. Hmm. And that was it. Oh, wow. Cool. So, yeah, I mean, but that gets to the heart of the character. Uh, everything else is just sort of the dressing, the Star Wars trappings and the mask and all that. Did you know that it would be yeah. a masked character? I did. Okay. They made that clear in the audition in case I was like, no way I'm going to do mm-hmm. that. Um, but that was really kind of an interesting challenge to me because uh, I, I started acting in theater and I did a lot of mask training like when I was in grad school and I'd never gotten to use that in television when I talked with John and Dave before we started shooting, John talked a lot about Kurosawa and those films, which was something I guess that George Lucas always also drew from when he was making the original movies. And he talked about the samurai and like the simplicity of movement and the efficiency of movement um, and kind of that unwavering authority that doesn't have mm-hmm. to push too hard. And I think that I, I love that about her. And I feel like that's what sort of lets us know that she knows a lot more than she's letting on and mm-hmm. she will reveal it in good time. But, you know, <laughs> no one's going to get any information out of her without her being good and ready. It's interesting that the armorer is considered the leader. Normally, like a blacksmith would just be 
a trade worker, you know, but that mm-hmm. is what the leader of this group does. Uh, did they discuss much of, about that dynamic and why that's the case? I guess because the armor is such a key part of who a Mandalorian is. Yeah, I think because the Mandalorians were traditionally, you know, the the warrior part of their tradition is so important to them. So I think that that's probably one of the reasons that she is held in such esteem. And then also because she's the one who makes all this armor, she sort of has, it makes sense to me that she would also be the one who is sort of the keeper of their history and the keeper mm-hmm. of their ritual because she actually has a record based on what it is that she's made and the armor that she's had to replace and the, the battles that these warriors have gone through. And, you know, when they've come back to her beaten and when they've come back and, and we're starting to get to see a little bit of this with, uh, with Pedro's character, you know, when they've earned their signet and what distinguishes them in battle, whether it's a, you know, he's so far as a lone ranger. And so he's earning the signet when he's off on his own, Mm -hmm. but some of them went off to battle together. Some of them have fought. I mean, there's that amazing, amazing moment that just gave me chills at the end of this third episode when they all, those of them that are, are hidden in this little covert clan, like they totally, um, come to, come to the plate for him, come to bat. And they, I feel like they remember the core of who they are and that they are all connected. Her armor is very interesting. It has a a real Spartan quality to it. The ancient Spartan mask is very similar to the way the eye slits are cut. It's uh, also just maybe more ornate and Mm -hmm. elegant than the other masks. Can you talk to me about what her costume reveals about who she is? I love that that there are those little changes that are so impactful. Um, I mean, I remember when uh, when Pedro saw my mask, he was like, "Wait a minute, why does she get to look so much cooler?" <laughs> She's the boss. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I, I I don't know everything about the the specifics of why they chose all of the details, but I do know, you know, that there was this attempt of sort of um, communicating a bit of regality and that she is, uh, in a position of, of leadership over them. Um, I have to say that even though I absolutely love that fur shoulder piece, it sure doesn't seem very practical for someone who is surrounded by fire all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) But it looks very cool. (laughs) And I love too, the, just the detail that, um, I mean, I, I, John John talked about how they they discussed this character and they decided to make it a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't want to like make it a big deal that they were making a woman. And I love that about it too, that like clearly she is a female and like she even sort of has a skirt. But even that like is has such a strong, powerful quality mm-hmm. um that doesn't call too much attention to to it. I feel like it's it's one of the most amazing like combinations of elegant and powerful that I've ever seen in a in a costume. Well, that's a good point to to make here. Is that this is the uh, the first of the Mandalorian episodes to be directed by a woman, by Deborah Chow, and uh, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, making the leader of these Mandalorians a woman. It is striking and significant in a way. So, what did they tell you about why they made that decision without again making? making a big fuss about it or making it seem unusual. Um, I think they just sort of felt like, why not? You know, it could go either Mm -hmm. way. And it is, 
It's something that uh, that I know we've seen in the animated series. There have been a lot of powerful mm-hmm. Mandalorian women, but we haven't gotten yeah. to see that as much in the live-action Star Wars. Um, and so maybe that played into it a little bit, but I, I, I don't mm-hmm. think there was like a... I think it was just sort of like, well, it could be a woman or a man. Wouldn't it be interesting if it was a woman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you devise the voice? You said they said, give it a try with a with an accent. Mm-hmm. What were you going for with the accent? What type of accent did you choose? Um, well, I mean, adding some element of like a mid-Atlantic or British mm-hmm. um, dialect to me definitely conveys authority. I mean, I thought a lot about like, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings and mm-hmm. and characters that I'd seen in that. And I think that also, to me, that contributes to the mystery. I don't know why. Maybe it's because mm-hmm. I'm American that I think that it's so interesting. <laughs> well, um, it does sound more sophisticated. You know, it's a very sophisticated yeah. kind of British accent, uh, a very educated person. She's not mm-hmm. She's not a cockney from the, you know, back streets of London. She's, yeah. <laughs> she's, uh, she's from Oxford. a little bit. Like, and I Mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting, like that it's, yeah, that it's sort of that educated voice in this warrior figure. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's, there's just a lot of like seeming contradictions about her that I love. And so tell me about performing her. So you're in the costume um, and, Mm -hmm. but are, is your dialogue being recorded? Is there a microphone inside the helmet? Are you being recorded separately? Inside the helmet. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I have to say that the experience of being in the costume is not nearly as dignified as it, it translates on film. <laughs> oh, really? I'm really glad that it looks as good as it does. And it was, uh, you know, we were block shooting mm-hmm. episodes one and three at the same time. And so um, we were all sort of learning uh, on the fly, like what the language of these these Mandalorian masks was, because we realized, um, I mean, of course you can't see our eyes. You can't see our mouths. You can't see like the normal ways of communicating emotion. And we learned that very small movements had a huge impact, um, which is great, but which is also a challenge because you can wind up communicating something that you don't even want to. And so the simple task of like walking across the room, I would have loved to have been able to like glance down and make sure I wasn't going to trip on something because we had like no peripheral vision, couldn't see down. But if I did that, it would communicate this huge movement that was entirely extraneous. And so <laughs> there was a lot of trust involved. I was right. also for that reason, really glad that she is a very deliberate and slow moving person. <laughs> that was helpful. But I also, I mean, I kind of secretly hope that at some point there's a bloopers reel that shows like just how ridiculous it is when you get two Mandalorians or more in a room together. Like we were bumping helmets, we were running into each other and tripping on things. I can't tell you how many times I like dropped my tongs or couldn't pick them up and all of the action sequences that look so great where I'm hammering metal and putting things into the, into the fire. Um, those took a long time (laughs) to actually capture was there real fire or is that a visual effect no that's a visual effect oh that's yeah (laughs) that would be that seems like an osha violation oh my gosh let's put her in a helmet where she can't see let's drape her in fur and let's put her next to some uh let's just see what happens (laughs) this this is uh episode three and we don't really know where it goes from here Mm -hmm. but um 
I, I, I really do hope we see more of the armorer and, and learn more about her and learn more about the Mandalorians through her. She seems like a very cool character. But before we let you go, I wanted to ask you about working with Deborah Chow on this episode and uh, what you felt uh, she brought as a special ingredient to uh, Chapter 3 of the Mandalorian story. I remember, first and foremost, her intense curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like she... She strike. I mean, it, it was kind of great having her as the director while I was trying to find this character because um, there were lots of things just in her personality that I felt like I could draw from. She's somebody who commands a room um, in a very graceful and simple way. Um, and she was so curious as we were, you know, like I was saying, like finding the language of these masks and these primitive armor. Um, she gave us time to try different things and to explore different things. And she wanted to see different things and try these interactions in different ways to see what would be communicated. I mean, I remember, I remember spending a lot of time with that, that Beskar steel and stacking it different ways and trying to determine like, okay, having this massive quantity of this, very prized material that had been stolen from our people, having it returned now, knowing that it may, you know, I, I think that the armor senses that it may have been gained through, um, less than noble means. The way, even the way it's stamped is kind of like Nazi gold. Or yeah. Something like yeah. That. And that's, they actually with they mentioned that they talked about that mm-hmm. a lot. And so trying to determine like how that would be handled, how would she, place it? How would she look at it? We spent a lot of time with those little details. Is it your sense that in making this armor, she's purifying it in a way? I think so, because I think that Mm -hmm. originally it did come from the Mandalorians. I mean, as she says to one of the the Mandalorian riffraff, you know, that, that raises a fuss and says basically that this is tainted steel, she says the empire is no more. And it's been returned to its rightful owners, you know, kind of let bygones be bygones. Like this was ours originally. And sure, it's been tainted. I think more important than whatever evil has transpired is where it came from. And where it came from was a noble place. And we're going to return it to that noble place and give it that noble standing. Emily Swallow, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. This was really fun. All right, let us go now to Anthony's chat with director Deborah Chow. Hey, Deb, it's so nice to talk to you. Uh, happy debut episode day for The Mandalorian. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, have you been gauging any of the reactions? It's been overwhelmingly positive, and it must be nice to trend on Twitter and, and not be canceled, actually be celebrated. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's been weird. It has been a very strange day. I woke up this morning to like, you know, many, many uh, texts and emails about it. And I was sort of like, how did everybody watch it this early in the morning? Like, why is it like seven in the morning in LA? Um, so, you know, it was definitely unexpected, but it's a great thing. And I'm really happy for the show. Um, what are some of your favorite reactions? I know you put a lot of work into the detail of this episode and there's a lot to think about and consider, but, uh, you know, from, from either an emotional moment or just some fun bit of dialogue, is there anything people are reacting to that you're especially like, you know, pumping your fist over? 
Um, I was really happy when we premiered it. Um, we premiered it in LA, and yeah. so we got to sort of see them big screen, which is great with uh, some of the real fans. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of the real Mandalorian fans there. And you know, for the big moment at the end when the Mandalorians come down and the you know the flying, mm-hmm. um, that's actually you know it was obviously a big moment on screen in live action. Um, and there was a huge response from the audience about that. And you know, I think both myself and the visual effects um, supervisor were both. Breathed a huge sigh of relief that thank God, you know, that it felt like we've done that moment justice. Oh, that's good. I was there. I was there with my little girl, and we both uh, we both loved that moment. It was yeah. I mean, I was happy to not have to invoke the ire of all those Mando fans. So, you know, you feel the responsibility of trying to get that one right. Yeah, I feel like every filmmaker who comes to Star Wars brings a bit of themselves. They they personalize it in some way, even though they're playing in a much bigger sandbox. What did you feel you were personally able to bring to the Mandalorian story with this uh, this installment uh, so early in, in the series? Um, I think with this episode, um, you know, obviously the roots are in Westerns and Samurai, mm-hmm. and you know, there's a pretty strong Yojimbo reference going on in the episode. Um, for me, you know, it's obviously my dad, uh, Chinese Mm -hmm. and I had grown up, like he was a huge movie fan and he was, you know, so I grew up when he was watching Hong Kong action films and Chinese jokes the whole time. Um, so to kind of get to reference, you know, I tried to bring a little bit of hard boiled with the baby, Mm um, and to sort of get that to go back to Kurosawa, it was a really kind of amazing thing because it was almost like coming back to sort of classic cinema and filmmaking. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, definitely a lot of my dad, I think, in the episode. Oh, that's, that's nice. Is, is your dad still, is he still around? Is he, um... Uh, no, he passed away, sadly. So, sadly, he didn't get to see this, but I know he'd be very proud if he did. He'd probably also be in shock. Um, <laughs> oh. but... Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that, but, uh, I, I know that that, um, you know, as somebody who grew up with Star Wars, I know what it's like to share that, like with a parent, and also to as a dad now myself. I know, boy, if I heard my daughter speak about me that way uh, years down the line, and and say that something I introduced her to became a part of her work, I would. I just think that that what a great loving Aww. tribute that is to him. So that's really sweet. Thanks for sharing that. Well, I'm sure she will. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> saying it one day. Um. So, so you put some of the, your dad's favorite Hong Kong action spirit into this episode. Uh, it really was an yeah. action-oriented uh, installment. That battle at the end was uh, was intense. And uh, uh, did you have a particularly favorite moment that you got to craft and, and create? Um, I crafted. You know, it's like we worked on that. You know, because it's quite a long sequence. Because mm-hmm. it starts with all the stuff and you know, getting the baby out of the compound. Um, and I have to say, like, I really took a pretty strong shine to killing stormtroopers. I actually really loved doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it was just sort of fun. So one of the challenges with the episode was to make the action interesting and very character-driven. Mm-hmm. But didn't just feel like, oh, we're just kind of, you know, flogging through this. Um, so we were trying to, I was trying to really, you know, and obviously with John's script and you know, with a lot of help from Coloni, um, is to craft it so that everything felt, you know, there's something different about each sequence, which I, I feel like we got mostly right, um, which is gratifying because we put a lot of work into trying to get that right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, played beautifully. And uh, the tension just kept ratcheting up and up and up. And uh, I, I wondered, uh, you know, I spoke with Emily Swallow, who plays the armorer, 
and she's also going to be on mm-hmm. our podcast. Uh, and, and she spoke about, uh, you know, you were block shooting, so she was shooting the pilot episode and this episode at kind of the same time. And she, I asked about working yeah. with you, and she said, oh, you know, I'm really glad I got to work with Deborah so early in the development of this character because I put a lot of her presence on set into the armorer. And I wondered if she discussed that with you. That's what oh she God. said. Yeah. And she, she said, you have like this very, like you have control of the room, but it's a very, like, it's a very calm control. And, uh, well, anyway. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's never said, yeah, she never told me that. Wow. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, but that's great. That's a huge compliment. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, also one of the things that helped, achieve that is the fact that we did a lot of crap and we were in there for months before. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, you know, it was very designed. Like we, we didn't just show up on the day, that's for sure. Right. Um, so I think all that prep sort of paid off into helping make, make the set feel that way. There, there was sort of a plan for everything. That's good. Um, but she was awesome. She was great. And it's such a great character. <laughs> you're, you're also the first woman to direct live action Star Wars. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on the significance of that. Um, it's strange. It is really weird. You know what I mean? Like, I grew up in Canada. I didn't have any connection to the business. So to sort of end up um, in this position is definitely not something I was ever expecting. Um, you know, and I, I really, even when I first got this job, it didn't even cross my mind. I mean, I don't know what fairyland I was into, but to not think that this was significant. But I literally wasn't going to think about it, you know. So... I sort of went through prep and it didn't even really occur to me until somebody said it, I think, one on one of the first days I was shooting. Because, um, you know, obviously Bryce was directing as well um, and, you know, Vic had, had done some, had done the second unit. So um, it didn't occur to me that it would kind of be the first thing released. Uh, but it's an honor, you know, and it's an amazing thing. So I'm, I'm really proud of it. That's good. I mean, it's, uh, I wasn't sure if it was something you thought like should it be noted or should it just be considered uh 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 not something that that, that, that is made a big deal of or uh i don't know it, it seems like it's it seems important to me and definitely the fans have been asking for broader representation in the filmmaking yeah. perspective um uh, uh but you say you didn't really feel the weight of it until until what like until afterward or or no uh, probably not until today, honestly. Oh, really? <laughs> um, not, not really. I mean, you know, I'm a, it's like there's, you know, there's, I think there's two sides to it, right? Like, I'm a director, so first and foremost, I want it to be about the work, you know? Like, I want to be a good director, not a good female director, but not a good Asian director. Um, so it's about the work, I think, as a director. But on the same, um, you know, by the same token, you know, obviously, you know, my career path and just sort of the representation, it is important. And it, it, it is meaningful, you know, that I want to see more women directors and want to see more directors of color. So um, I think it is important, but at the same time, I hope it doesn't take away from the work or or try to justify it in any way, you know? Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I, the people are applauding the episode just for its sheer entertainment value and its thrills and its, uh, and its heart. And I think, uh, you know, uh, I mean, my feeling is it just, it's a nice pioneering moment and something that everybody can look at and aspire to, no matter who you are. I guess that's a nice after effect of, yeah. of doing, just doing good work, right? Exactly. Well, that's, I mean, that's kind of the point of it. I mean, for me, I think, um, both in terms of gender and, and race, it's like, 
ideally we'd get to the point where it doesn't matter anymore, mm-hmm. you know, that we're all there and we're all on the same playing field. Um, and it just does become about the work. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, whenever somebody works on Star Wars, it, it all looks cool on the, in the finished product, but there's like a kind of natural absurdity to making Star Wars because you're dealing with like robots and puppets and people in masks and people in fursuits and, and aliens and things that aren't even there because they'll be added as visual effects later. Yes. Um, did it, did you ever feel that way? I mean, I remember Mark Hamill saying, uh, he wasn't so sure that star Wars was going to work because it all seemed very cool, but he's running along and he's beside Sir Alec Guinness and a guy in a space monkey suit. And the monkey is the one who's going to fly them out of there. <laughs> and like, he's like, I don't know if this is actually a good idea. Uh, was there, were there ever any moments where you were like, this is just, this is just Absolutely. bizarre. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had a day where I think it was one of the weirdest moments I've ever had directing where I was directing Werner with the puppet and, you know, you have Mando um, and Werner just had fallen in love with the baby. And Werner, I think, had forgotten that it wasn't actually a live creature and started sort of directing the, the baby. <laughs> And the Werner's talking to the baby as like as though it's a real thing and I'm trying to direct Werner. Um and I was just like, How did I get here? <laughs> How did my life end up like this? <laughs> um certainly I had days where I'm like I, I'd have the Ugnaught and like other you know, and Mando and a helmet and a puppet and this and a droid over in the corner, just like, Oh my god, does anybody have eyes? Like is there a human face anywhere? <laughs> um but it that said, I mean that's the amazing thing. You know, like I'm a I love genre. Like I mm-hmm. I come from a fantasy um and sci fi background. Like that's what I generally I genuinely love as a fan. Um so it's sort of a dream come true. So the weirder the better for me. That sounds great. Tell me about Baby Yoda. I mean, there's a phenomenon around this This being. People are obsessed with it. I, like I said, my little girl, when we were watching the three episodes back-to-back, every time that thing would appear on screen, she would just grab me and be like, he's so cute, he's so cute. Like, And everybody Aww. on the planet seems to be doing that, including Werner Herzog. Uh, so um, yeah. so what, tell me about your experience with with Baby Yoda. And should we call it Baby Yoda? What, what should we actually, how do we refer to this thing? <laughs> well, I will, I will definitely defer to Dave Filoni on that. Okay. I think he, I think he said, I mean, you should check with, uh, the powers that be on this, but, mm-hmm. um, I think that he said it was acceptable because we haven't, you know, they haven't, we haven't actually given it another name yet. Right. So it's um, I think it's okay, but I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely not going to be the voice of authority okay. on that question. <laughs> I know that one's being very, very hotly contested. <laughs> but what's it like being around this, this um, thing? Is it, is it, always a puppet? Is it sometimes digital animation? What can you tell me about what it's like seeing it in real life? It was pretty magical. I mean, it was a mixture, so it was puppetry and some visual effects. Mm-hmm. Um, but the puppeteers were amazing. Uh, you know, they're they're the ones who, it was like working with an actor. You know, I mean, they're the ones who gave it humanity and gave it life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was pretty special, and you could feel it on set. You know, it's like when you have everybody from Bernard Herzog to even like, you know, grips and gaffers getting moved by it. Like every time we, we brought it on set, everybody would just be sort of melting. Um, kind of, you know, it felt like, oh, I, you know, I hope the audience feels the same way that we do. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was pretty magical, you know. And you can actually direct it. You can ask for like certain emotions or expressions and they can, you know, make that happen. Yeah. I mean, I just worked with it, honestly. I worked with the puppeteers and with visual effects and I just, I just, worked with it as though it was an actor where it would just be about emotions 
Um, like, I'm not going to try to tell them technically how to do it. That's right. up for them to, you know, obviously manipulate. But I would just say, you know, it's like we would talk through it and it would be like, okay, here's the scene. The door opens and there's a scary thing. So, you know, he's going to shrink back. He feels scared right now. He's going to, you know, look to Mando for comfort. So it just sort of, we'd do it that way where it was really just about following the emotional through line and then just let them all interpret it. Oh, wow. You know? Well, um, so, but really we just treated it like it was an actor. Oh, sorry is- to interrupt. Oh, that's, we have to wrap. I'll wrap it up. That was that. That's all. That's it. I just, uh, I just want to say thank you so much for talking to me on your big day and congratulations. You have another episode coming thank down you the so line, much. right? So you did two. Thank episodes. you. I'm, yeah, another one coming. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I, I can't wait to see that, and uh, I know you're. Everybody knows you're working on the Obi Wan series, so I hope that's going well. Yeah. And I just wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, we did it. That's it for episode three. Uh, we are we are in the dark with the rest of you as the Mando goes off on his next adventure with the baby in tow. Um, until next time, Anthony, where can people find your work? You can find me on Twitter uh, at Bresnikan. Uh, you can find both of us at VanityFair.com. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. And you can find me talking about The Crown, actually, which we referred to uh, a little ways back in this feed in an earlier Still Watching episode or talking about award season on the Little Gold Men podcast. And uh, until next time, we'll see you in space. Oh, but we've got, we have a new... Uh, we have a new catchphrase. Don't we have a new sign-off? Oh, yeah. You want to try it? Okay. Well, let's, let's do it. Let's, Wait. let's do the new one. You should we say. We have it. to give a shout out to the person <laughs> who, uh, who proposed it. Okay. I got a, a Twitter message from, uh, a listener named David Valadez. And he said, Yo, Anthony, just finished your second episode of your podcast with Joanna. If it hasn't been suggested by some other fans yet, your sign off catchphrase should be, We have spoken. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's try to say it. A little nod to, a little nod to Nick Nolte's Ugnat character, Kuil. Uh, Thanks for providing insight on the show. Look forward to hearing more. Thank you, David, for this suggestion. I sent it to Joanna right away with a bunch of exclamation points. And we both <laughs> loved it. So I think we have our sign off, right, Joanna? All right. So until next time, we have spoken. We have spoken. <laughs> right, well, we have to do it. Wait, one more time. Okay. That's right. Well, one more time with that real cool, right. like almost like arrogant, liking your own Facebook post energy. Great. All right, ready? Right, yeah. All right. Until next time. We have, we have spoken. spoken. <laughs> Want to stay up to date on the biggest stories in pop culture and entertainment? Then be sure to check out the TMZ podcast. I'm Charlie Cotton from TMZ, the TV show, and every day I'll sit down with a member of our news team to give exclusive breakdowns of the day's most talked about headlines, stories we break, and the stories you care about. So check out the TMZ podcast, Monday through Friday, and the other podcasts from the TMZ audio network like Last Days and TMZ Verified, available on all podcast platforms. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. 
or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakopli, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts.